Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Back to the show. Today, uh, I want to talk about a book that our friends at Convergence sent over to me. It's called Following Jesus by Henry J.M. Nowen. The thing is, I would love to talk to Henry Nowen, but he's no longer alive. And I want to support this book because I read it. I thought it was really good, but I obviously can't talk to Henry Nowen, so I didn't know who I should talk to. I started thinking, well, what is it about Henry Nowen that makes him unique and that gives him his voice? And I was trying to think, like, who who fits in some of those, like, boxes that Henry Nowen fits in? And I think, obviously, it's got to be someone who's single, because Henry Nowen was single, uh, someone who's had experience connected to Notre Dame, uh, and someone, you know, if you know anything about Henry Nowen, he comes across uh, t- to many people, many have said this who are close to him, that he's a very needy individual. And so I thought, a single person connected to Notre Dame who's very needy, <laughs> <laughs> and, it, I mean, it was obviously Jason Miller. I mean, that's who we're all thinking. So, Jay, thanks for coming on uh, to talk about Henry Nowen. I'm, really, I'm so honored. I'm so honored. I, I, um, the problem is I don't know how to actually reject any of what you just said. <laughs> but, uh, but, but you, you're not alone. You are not alone today. I'm not alone because I'm so needy <laughs> that I made sure I had a friend here with me in flesh and blood since you're in Austin and I'm in South yes. Bend. Would you like to introduce our, our mutual friend? Yeah, this is kind of a fun, a fun callback to uh, an episode that we did in uh, the Middle East uh, last year, because our friend Mike Goldsworthy is hanging out with us in South Bend right now. Yeah. So we got Goldsworthy and Newsworthy. Yeah. And then Jay. I, and Jay, yeah. I mean, I feel like gold is above news in the worthy <laughs> hierarchy. I, yeah. I think that's it's, right. Dare yeah. I say it's the gold standard. And for that, we thank you for bringing that to the podcast. Now, last time we, we had you on, uh, we were... We were in a very conflicted, uh, just tense, uh, strife-filled area of the Palestinian-Israeli uh, world, and now you're in an equally uh, struggling area known as South Bend. How would you compare and contrast those two environments? That oh. Oh. wow, I think I got to throw a flag what? there. Wow, wow, I think I got to throw a flag there. No, I was just talking because Notre Dame during <laughs> football season, like it always starts off really good. Oh, is that? It's kind of like, oh man, that was hard uh for us so i don't know maybe how's that how's abilene christian doing in the uh in their d1 efforts <laughs> hey wow. hey hey let's not uh let's not make this personal okay um so the point is jay you have with you uh a sidekick and i thought i would also have with me a sidekick who also would have similar intellectual rigors and so i have right next to me my dog oliver today <laughs> <laughs> Oliver, because yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so I figured it's four person podcast. Uh, we've got uh, Jay Gold, Newsworthy, and then we've got Oliver. So I think we we're ready to go. Now, Mike, can I tell you something? Uh, I was I was Please. on a plane recently with someone from South Bend, Indiana, and they were sitting next to me, and we had a small conversation on a brief flight. And I asked them, uh, they, they asked me why I was in the area, and I said something about church, and uh, I, I asked them if they were connected to church in the area, and they said they went to this church called Granger Community Church. And I said, I'm familiar with that. There is a friend of mine who used to be the JV preacher there, and that's, of course, Jay. And so I said, yeah, do you know who Jason Miller is? And this uh, single mother in her mid to late 30s said, oh, yeah, I know Jay. And I'm going to edit this because... Um, Unlike one of us on the call, I still have a job. Um, <laughs> um, oh, Mike. And she said, oh, Jason, he really knows his crap. And that's how she described your preaching. 
Uh-huh. I, I think I think that's nice. No, I think that is good, actually. I don't know yeah. why you would edit that well, out. It, it wasn't yeah. the word. Yeah, oh, that's okay. say crap. Oh. Uh, so, you were editing as you spoke. Got it. Oh, yeah. Okay, I even like that more yeah, now. Yeah, put that on your bio. Like, that's Jay. Um, <laughs> yeah, everybody needs some testimonials. Yes, yes. I'll make okay, that mine. But, <clears throat> that's really but sweet. But you... Uh, you have a graduate degree from Notre Dame, so you basically know Henry Nowen. Um, Mike, totally. We're basically buddies. Mike, you're a smart guy. I feel like... Do, do you have a D-men? I feel like you probably have one and didn't tell no, me. No, no, no. I have a master's okay. and not even an MDiv. Oh, okay. Well, I don't have an MDiv either. You and I didn't need the MDiv to do what Luke needed the MDiv to do. Uh, sure. Okay. Well, then as the most educated person on this call, I'll um, keep that in mind. Um, but Mike, you were uh, for 17 years uh, at a church... Park Crest, am I getting it right? Park Crest, yeah, and I was there for 19, 19. actually. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, I teach at Hope International University. Mm-hmm. But you recently uh, stepped down, you resigned from this, and now I your did. Instagram feed has you talking about making spoons and drawing pictures. <laughs> that, that's, that, that is the life of a uh, 41-year-old retired pastor. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, well, I feel like I've insulted you all, uh, enough. Uh, so I feel like we're now ready to talk about Henry now. Do you guys good with that? I, I think so. I yeah. feel a little defensive now, and I feel like it's hard to talk about such a tender, contemplative writer when my guard is up. You know, oh, I, might, I might have to no. might have to sit in your belovedness for a little <laughs> yeah, while first. Yeah, that's exactly right. Which is never the experience I have when I'm recording a conversation. Well, with well Luke. what I think Nowen teaches us to do is to hear that still, quiet voice that refers to us as the beloved. And what that requires mm-hmm. us to not do is to expect others to be the one who communicates that to us. And so what I'm doing is I'm pointing to prayer. So you're giving me a gift right now is what yes, you're doing. It's, it's definitely, <laughs> definitely a gift. Okay. Now, if... Uh, That's good. Let's talk about let's Henry. Let's talk about uh, Henry Nowen. Now, I assume some of our listeners aren't super familiar with this beloved figure. So would one of you like to take a stat we'll put it on on your plate first jay uh give someone like the the 60 second intro to who henry Nouwen is yeah catholic dutch priest or dutch cat whatever he's dutch and he's catholic priest uh specialized i think in like pastoral psychology um you know did work like at notre dame and then went to yale and harvard which i call a downgrade and then eventually ended up at Larch Community, uh, where I think a lot of people really admire his work because he went from really elite spaces to uh, a space that wouldn't be sort of thought of that way, probably, where he worked with people with different uh, cognitive ability for the rest of his life. And I think a lot of us have just found his voice to be a really, really trustworthy voice um, around like the inner world and our experience of God and woundedness and healing. He wrote a book called The Wounded Healer that I feel like is maybe the first book that a lot of us came to think of him as important for. Um, yeah, what am I missing? Mike, I, I think the line, wounded healer, is probably the line of nouns that I've referenced the most. When you think of the times that you've referenced nouns work or subject matter or concepts, uh, what are things that come to mind that you've used the most? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know that I have a specific line, but I do think about the book that was uh, lectures that he gave that was the... Um, uh, on the temptations of Jesus and the temptations in leadership, and that he gave it with one of the developmentally disabled men from the community who was with, who was standing up there with him. Um, like, I think of that a lot as this uh, picture of what leadership is supposed to look like in the community of Jesus and how different it is than outside of that. Yeah, I, I think it's um, in the 
is it the way of the heart that he talks about the the three temptations? I, I might be wrong. I think it's no. I think it's in the name, in the name of Jesus. Jesus. In the name of Jesus. That's, that's, it. Yeah, that's it. Uh, but I find myself uh, going back to those three ideas quite often. I find them to be deeply meaningful. Um, he's got uh, he's got a Lenten devotional that I've used a handful of times, and I've always found it to be deeply uh, deeply meaningful. Mm. Uh, so he's someone uh, of great standing because of his willingness to kind of lose that standing and to not make the sort of yeah. upward trajectory that most of us want. I think, uh, I, th- I think it was, uh, I think Joel Houston has a song um, on one of the Hillsong United albums that uh, he references that that line from now on. I think, he, I think Joel's line is like uh, upward falling. Something like that, but it's trying to to play off this idea of Nowen's way of following this cruciform posture of the world to not just take the steps up, but to be willing to take the steps down. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah. I, I think that's why I, I found him so I- impressive and so um, uh, so noteworthy of someone to, to go the opposite direction. And in doing so, I think he shows us the truest direction of what Jesus is. So when uh, I got this book in the mail, it's uh, a lecture. I think he gave uh, the year was nineteen eighty five at uh, Harvard, which Jay referred to as a step down from Notre Dame, uh, which no, yeah, exactly. no one else would actually ever say that but you. Um, uh, I thought, let's talk about this with, uh, with us, and then, you know, Mike, you just kind of tag along. So uh, I'm glad you're tagging along for this. But what I thought we could do is maybe we could just kind of go through a couple sections of the book that uh, we find to be most, dare I say, newsworthy and uh we'll just riff off that how does that sound for you guys yeah sounds great let's do it i'm good to go since i feel like since goldsworthy didn't get the book ahead of time it's actually you're paying him the highest compliment yeah i didn't know i needed to reference that time no i think this is fair to call out like i got time to prep with this and this is like the first that mike is hearing of this (laughs) but i like now and and so i'm just gonna say yes to a lot of things and we like you And we like you. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Jay, you want to go first? You want me to go first? Um, shoot. Uh, sure. I'll, I'll come right out of the gate. Um, the way he framed this thing about um, people who are either uh, like, like anxiously like wandering or have lost their energy to do that, and they're just sitting there. And like whether you're like frantically moving around chasing everything or whether you've given up on all that and you, you're just like, like you've uh, like you lost the will to pursue anything. He says both of these people are very tired, mm. huh. and I just like right out of the gate thought, man, this was a lecture he gave in the eighties, and th- like I feel like uh, I could learn how to preach in the year twenty nineteen from like the way he's naming an experience that I think sounds really familiar to a lot of us. So you think people are are in this wandering state? I think people are either frantically chasing or have bumped into the limits of that and are just kind of. Um, have lost a lot of like connection to desire. So it's like either like desire that's taking them in a thousand directions and they don't know what to do with it. Or they've been so sort of defeated by that, that they're just kind of stuck. And whether it's the first category or the second category, he just, he just says they're very, they're very tired. And I just think that all that sounds really familiar to me right now. Uh, Okay. Jay, this might seem like a nice thing to say, so it's obviously gonna be out of character, but I was listening to uh, a sermon you did not too long ago and you do this thing about, um, Jesus is on uh, walking down the road and there's a person, uh, who's in a tough spot in life who reaches out and yells out to, to Jesus. And, uh, it it might've been Bartimaeus, but, uh, Jesus response to him is, 
is what do you want? And Jesus asked the question, like, what do you want? Yeah. In, in your sermon, you say, like, there's always, there's always a desire that's underneath it. And so we all think that we have some desire, but underneath it, there's an even more substantial desire that exists. What do you think? Do yeah. you think it's the inability to accurately pinpoint what our true desire is that causes us to go in those, like, the, the two options that Noun talks about where you're, you're chasing after something because you don't really know what the desire is or you've given up because you realize the desire you actually have is more substantial than you're willing to, to, to address? I mean, I definitely think, um, even, even, like, as our community talked through that, we're, we were doing some sacred questions, so we just camped out on what do you want that week, um, and I think I like I knew it in my own life, but then getting to learn about it from my community, um, yeah, like like I, that week, man, I had people aged sixteen to sixty um, in really kind of a broken place, saying, "I don't actually, I actually don't know what I want." And they're like looking at their work, they're looking at their family pursuits, they're looking at all the energies they're expending, and I think there was like a really kind of difficult reckoning with like i don't even know how to listen to that voice any anymore right and i think like our wants get colonized yeah. by like everything from marketing to the joneses next door you know like we could even go down on it might be obscure but like um gerard's sort of idea that desire is always learned from other people's desire like we mimic other people's desires so the reason i want what i want is because i saw you wanting it and like yeah i just think there's like lots of layers there and then i think jesus knows that underneath all of that there are like sacred desires and if we could learn to hear them we'd be better off. Right? Yeah. I, it, to me, it always seems like the, um, the there was this uh, uh, Coke, Coke machine, like the, the soda can machine in Abilene where I went to college. And I remember this, this, uh, the, the commercial in the front, or the, the, the print ad on the front of it was this guy with like the middle part hair that's kind of like the surfer th- thing from like the 90s. Uh, and he had like this Coke and, and he was reaching out like his, his hand was like almost coming to the person walking by and there was a big, uh, in big bold font it said, Thirsty. As if like this is going to satiate your thirst when everyone knows that Coke actually yeah. is going to make you more thirsty because of the amount of sugar yep. and everything that's in it. It's not actually, not actually going to fix your desire. But the quickest thing that seems to placate the desires we have is the one that we often f- like fasten our attention to. But the, the invitation yeah. of Jesus is like, let, let's go deeper and find out like what you're actually desiring. And, yes. And my, and, yeah. And the- I'll come back to you in one second, Jay. But Mike, I hate to put you on the spot right here, but like I know that you're kind of like this liminal phase between what you were doing and what you're going to do next. And it seems like to me like... It, yeah, I was just thinking it, about that. If I'm in that spot, I'm trying to figure out what do, I, what do I really desire? Is it the same thing that I have been doing or what I need to do next? Like how are you processing that? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting in a lot of ways because uh, being in ministry for so long, for two decades, and at a particular church for almost that entire time, that you get accustomed to thinking through everything through that lens, and then and then hitting a point where it's like, I don't think this is the right thing, or at least the particular thing I was doing was not the right thing for me in that mm-hmm. season, to step out of it and to not be in anything right now. Um, like you don't have those voices. You get to choose what voices you're letting in. And it's interesting because you want to listen to the still small voice, but there's so many, like you start to descend into that and then you quickly give into the other, the other voices. So you don't always allow yourself to hear it. I don't, I don't know. It's, I feel like it's really interesting to have the space to be able to slow down and hear that and turn off the other voices and to not always be able to, even though like you want to and you have the capacity to, yeah. I guess. I don't know if that makes any sense or I'm just no, rambling. No, it doesn't. It actually echoes some of the noun stuff that's, that I found to be very meaningful is the idea that prayer is to slow down to hear that voice. 
And you can hear a lot of really good voices. And I think for being a pastor, uh, like you were for 19 years, Mike, or Jay, in your community being the guru or organizer, whatever terminology you, y'all people use. Um, we don't use any of that terminology, at least not for but me. It's, it, they're good voices that you hear, but it's not the truest voice about who you mm-hmm. are and what you're designing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I cut you off a second yeah. here, Jay. What were you going to say? Well, I just was going to say, like, you know, I think, um, like, one thing that the Christian tradition is, is strong on is recognizing that we have unworthy desires. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe the problem is that, like, we don't go far enough, right? So we, uh, by the way, the passage that you were talking about, like, Luke asked the beggar, what do you want? But, like, three paragraphs earlier, James and John come to Jesus, and they, they also want something. They're like, hey, Jesus, we got, we got, can we have a meeting? And Jesus asked them, what do you want? It's the exact same question. Or it's, what do you want me to do yeah. for you? Only their question or their their desire is: Can we sit on your right and left in the kingdom? Can we have um, a vision of power that Jesus wasn't even all about? Anyway, it just strikes me that like Jesus doesn't give up on asking what you want. He pushes further, and and I think it's good that we're aware that there's unworthy desire. But I think the tragedy is that the lesson that a lot of us took away from that was that our desire is irrelevant or unimportant R- rather than like letting God take us more deeply into it. And there's that C.S. Lewis quote, yep. um, which I'm going to botch, but it's something like the problem is not that our desires are too strong, but that yep. they're too weak. And that we're like kids making mud pies in a slum, not having any awareness of a holiday at the beach. And like, almost like God is saying, no, want more deeply, want better, you know, and it's actually in there if, but I think it's really scary and disruptive, yep. right? Like if you actually, if you actually like let that, those desires come to the surface, they might not be at peace with the life you're living right now. And that could screw some stuff yeah, up. Yeah, for sure. Two things I want people to notice. First of all, is that you said Luke asked, uh, in place of Jesus asked. And I think it, I oh, think did that's, I? I, I did hear that. Too. I think it's, <laughs> I, I think that's a natural mistake. Yeah, I, I mean, suppose. It a lot of people. I get that. Um, but two, I, I like that too. C.S. Lewis quote. I was actually thinking to myself of how easily we're satisfied with ultimately what is not our truest desire. And I think mm. hearing that still quiet voice and the imitation of Jesus is always to know who you are, to know actually what your needs are and what you actually desire that's beyond what's the superficial desire. Uh, there's, a, there's a section that uh, Nowen uh, writes later in the book. And let me read it to you. It says, our needs can lead to wounds. We can wound people with our needs because we often force people to give something that they do not have. And so one of the things mm-hmm. about now, and I, and I joked about the be- beginning, but, you know, Jean Venier, who is one of his closest friends who he lived with in Toronto at, at the community you mentioned earlier, uh, he, he talks about that Henry now was a, was a really needy person. And there's this great quote he talks about friendship with him was, was difficult. You know, he'd show up and he, he would want more. And uh, I don't know who's, who's typed Nowen as an Enneagram too, but I think that's a pretty fair read if I was going uh, to mm. do something which most people would say you're not supposed to do. But th- the idea of our needs when we superimpose it upon someone else to fill that for us, like ultimately our biggest desire we're not naming, but we have that superficial desire and we superimpose that desire upon what we expect other people to do for us. Mm-hmm. It, it always leads to hurting other people because no one can live up to that. Yes. Yeah, I like I I deeply relate to that. I think I had a cycle in college where I was figuring out that out that that out the hard way. Like when I was digging into some some of my wounds, the first thing that happened is I got I got intensely needy in a way that no person could possibly live up to. And then the fact that I had these expectations on these friends of mine to be something they could never be, 
just exacerbated the wound because it, conf- it confirmed my worst suspicions, mm. which is that like this craving thing inside me could never be healed. Because huh. of course they couldn't heal it, you know? I mean, I feel like I experienced that l- maybe less with people and more with a job mm-hmm. and putting those expectations on my role and that like this is going to fulfill all these needs and purpose mm-hmm. and and then it never does and then you're dissatisfied with the job or the role or the organization, the church, whatever, because it's not fulfilling. Yes, yeah. It's not fulfilling that purpose yeah. for you. So I... Um, I was uh, that same page you were on, Luke. He, um, I was drawn to that. He talked about I'm in need of affection. I'm in need of attention. I'm in need of affirmation. I'm in need of praise. I'm in need of influence, power, success. Uh, and then a little while, like next page, he says, I was amazed how everyone in San Francisco and LA who were filmmakers and in the show business that I worked with, how everyone was in constant need of hearing how great they yeah. were. Um, and then a little later, even people who are immensely praised and have made an enormous amount of money, who have awards, success, and applause can be deeply depressed. Anyway, I feel like he's like using that as a critique of what like, like whatever like the world out there can be like. But I, I just couldn't help but hear that as a word for the church and for pastors. Because like a lot of us, you know, we preach, and whether the church is like our sermons or not, whatever, like in the year 2019, preaching, pastoring can very easily be an ego enterprise. And I, yeah. I just couldn't help but hear that as a word about the work we do as much as it might be a word about people in other lines of work. Well, I think it it, like in, in the, when your work is so public, like preaching, like that's a very public part of church work. It, uh, it it becomes like you said in 2019, it's the appropriate thing to say when you're walking out of the room. And from my experience at a smaller church compared to a bigger church, uh, when I was at a smaller church, people didn't give me compliments as much because you don't just go up to your friend and say, hey, that was really good. But when there's more distance between the actual person that you're listening to and and you, yes. uh, it, it becomes more of a normal interaction because that's what, you know, you don't know them, you know, and that's what you're supposed to say. But the church world, in the same way that the, the Hollywood types that he described in San Francisco, you get used to that and it becomes just something that uh, you just expect. It becomes part of your normal interaction. And maybe this is more what you're experiencing right now, Mike. I don't know if you are experiencing this or not, uh, but when you step away from that, there could be a level of addiction that you have to the, the, like the dopamine rush you get when people say, Hey Mike, that was a great sermon. You did a really good job. Good job. We love you being our pastor. Bro. Yeah. I mean, we can turn this into a counseling session right now for me, if you would like. I could use pastoral care from both of you. Literally, maybe like two weeks ago, I'm telling my wife, Allison, I was like, gosh, um, I, I have not had anybody call me for advice. I've not had anybody reach out to me to want to know like how to handle a situation. I feel so unneeded and so useless right now because I'm so used to being so needed, so like... Uh, praised for certain things and then to by my choice to step out of all that to not to be in a space where you don't have that starts raising all these questions of identity and value and significance uh, that you Mm -hmm. didn't you thought you didn't have like I didn't think that those things were identity and value and significance but it's just all being exposed Mm -hmm. wow yeah yeah and so I think you know now it's invitation for all of us in those moments is okay how do you get to that still quiet voice? How do you hear beyond just a noise of a very well-intentioned and encouraging and supportive people that, that for many, it's like, these are the body of Christ. Like they are representing the love of God, but the way that we can hear that on a surface level and think our performance is who we are, is our personality is, hmm. is what blocks us from, from going deeper and hearing what's underneath that. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking while I was reading that too. So I was thinking about my own temptations 
from like what our what our work the temptations that are built into our work. I was also thinking as a pastor then, because um, I, like, I want to be an encouraging pastor. I like celebrating our people. You know, like I think, I think that's important and, I, and I, that's, it's fun to do that. And I think um, church ought to be a place where you walk in and you feel like this community believes in me. They love me, you know? But I think like I, even I was reading that, I was also wondering what's the pastoral voice who knows how to celebrate people and cheer for people, but also lives close enough to people that they can um, speak to, to the deeper things that need to be affirmed in a person so that like the community that we build together isn't just sort of ego reinforcement, you know? So, you know, I got people in my church that are doing well in business or who um, have created something artistic that's really beautiful or who are student athletes at Notre Dame or whatever. And it's the headline on their life is usually the way they're succeeding. And if I don't know them very well, the easy thing is to celebrate that with them. And I don't think that's bad. I just, I was, as I was reading that, I was, I felt this kind of fresh desire to like make sure I'm learning how to name the deeper things in a person's life that we ought to be um, cheering for or talking about, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, so now it has a section about what real, uh, r- real love between a person, like mm. between two people is, is like, let me read this to you. He says, when, when we say to somebody, I love you, that really means you are a window through which I can get a glimpse of the infinite love of God. If we say, I really love you, it doesn't mean that the person gives us all that we need. It means you bring me in touch with the God that I have already met in the depth of my heart. You are sounding through to me the love that I have in my heart. I am sounding through for you the love that you already recognize in your heart. Uh, Later, about uh, 60 pages later in the books, he talks about how it's the Christ in me that sees the Christ in you. And so that, like this idea of love is that we become this window for the Christ that's in, in both of us. And so how do we do that instead of just like praise someone for their performance or praise them for what everyone else is doing? Yeah. I mean, my first thought was you kind of already hit on it, Luke, but like, like prox- like without proximity, it's pretty hard to do that. Right. Which gets back to like being realistic about what a large, like, and I think big churches and small churches all have strengths and weaknesses, but I wonder if this is one of the reasons that Gene Peterson was on the record saying you should go to the smallest, closest church you can. Cause maybe the thing he was tapping into is we have to be really close to, like we have to really live with each yeah. other. Well, un- unless you're going to go to your church on Sunday, Jay, and pull a Thanos and make half the people disappear. Um, your church is, I'm sorry, that's a Marvel <laughs> reference, which you're not going to get. Cause I, did, I had no <laughs> idea what that, I was like, what's a Thanos? Is that a Greek word? I didn't I learn hate it. Your first thought, oh, that's cool. a Greek word. Um, Instead of, jeez, um, it's a reference to someone causing half the world's population to disintegrate. Um, okay, but okay, so you could do like everyone has to be at a church under three hundred, like Peterson said. Which okay, there's there's some wisdom to Peterson. He's done a few more things than I'll ever do in my life, so I would probably trust him over my suggestion. But with that being said, I will continue with my suggestion. It might mean that in light of what our realities are in church world these days, that. It, it means that you have to be intentional about creating your sub-community within your church. And if you're, you're in a church yeah. that, you know, Mike, your church was 1,000 people or something like that, right? I mean, yeah. churches that size, you have to create your own church within a church. And that's how you find those relationships that I think can give you the more meaningful connection. Mm-hmm. I was just, I, I don't remember where I saw it. Somebody was quoting Ruth Haley Barton 
today or yesterday that was saying like in our churches, we're not actually though creating community or creating small groups. And in our small groups, we're either studying the Bible or we're like trying to be friends, but we're not actually creating a community driven by Christ and was differentiating what the actual experience is. And I mean, that's my, to be frank, like experience a lot of times in the church is that it's like we, we create these communities that gather together on a regular sort of basis that are supposed to be more intimate, whatever, but they never, like, we have a hard time ever moving it to that place. So you never actually in the church communities, that's supposed to be your church within the church, get to a place where we are deeply knowing one another for me to see the Christ in you. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Right. I, you know, I, I, I think churches can't, program community like you just can't do it but you can create environments you can create programs that create a conducive environment for community to be formed and so you you can't say hey this is gonna be the person you're gonna call three o'clock in the morning when your life falls apart you can't say like okay we're gonna assign you but what you can do is create space for people to be in the same room to be committed to a similar mission to to create a similar objective that during that effort they get more connected to each other i had a friend Mm -hmm. who was planning a church and they they didn't do any setup and tear down no setup and tear down which for most church plants like that is like the bane of their existence it's, it's like a luxury yeah, to yeah. Did not yeah, do it. And, yeah. and so i thought well that's a luxury not to do that but one of the things that i think we found as the trajectories of these churches that both of us were starting a while back went through is that his church had a had a hiatus over the summer and they stopped some of their program and when they tried to pick it back up no one came back because huh. it was when they were when they weren't working together, when they weren't striving together, doing something monotonous like you know carrying speakers or moving carts, that they didn't have a chance to really develop a, an actual relationship with each other. And sometimes it's in those sort of yep. uh, banal sort yes. of tasks yeah, that you yeah. actually, oh wow, this is a chance yeah. for me to get to know someone. Yeah, Don't you, I, I feel like um, the church I used to work at, we would sometimes say, um, and I'm not saying we nailed this, but we, we would say. If you aim for community, you rarely get it. Hmm. But if you aim for um, service, mission, or other sort of things that we ought to be directing our lives toward in the kingdom, you often get community yeah. thrown in. Yeah. And I feel like, like you're describing that, right, Luke? Like, I'm not sure that anybody, well, maybe some people are really smart like this, and they would think of, like, set up and tear down as a, the, the real virtue there is that we're becoming a family. A, a lot of us probably wouldn't think that way. We're just aiming to, like, get this church community up and yeah. running. But, like, in the wake of that, like you look around, like oh wow, we actually became family here, right? Yeah, right. I'd love to hear a little bit from both of you, just because um, you both had more time in a lead role than me. Um, how the two of you have thought about your like your own personal community relationship to your like with relationship to the church that you're part of, and then how it is that you make sure that you've got in your own life the kind of relationships that make possible what Nowen's talking about. Since gold is more yeah. uh, important than news, so we'll let you go first. <laughs> wow. Um, I don't know that I ever did this super well, but we ch- always would try to find a couple of, like Allison and I would try to find a couple who we would really resonate with that we could be good friends within the church. We didn't have a lot of good friends in the church. We had a lot of, we had a lot of acquaintances and some level of friendship with people in the church, but we would always try and find a couple of people that was like, these are people that we can be more intimate with that we can share more vulnerably with. Um, so like, so some of those people actually moved outside of Austin and, um, 
and so now like we stay in touch over Marco Polo and try and share regularly on that what's going on um but yeah honestly I never did great with that I often would be a part of like pastor gatherings where you're supposed to find those friends and would just feel a disconnect with them for the most part mm. mm-hmm. um, like yeah. pastors from other churches. Pastors yeah, from right. other churches, yeah. So, like, I mean, I found pastoring to be very lonely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you guys are all right. Yeah, so I've been a part of, uh, so you were at your church 19 years. I mean, that's two decades. That's a long time. Yeah. Um, I've been a part of this church for four years now. And, you know, I came to this church uh, as someone who, you know, I, I wasn't like 19 years old. So I had been around long enough that I had had friendships and relationships and so I didn't show up to this church saying, hey, I need y'all to be my best friends. And yeah. so it, it was a, a nice, uh, it, it was nice because I have a foundation of relationships that I've had for, for years and people that, um, uh, from other pastors from around the world uh, that uh, I've gotten to know that are people that they've known me through year, for years and they've seen me in good times and in bad times. And there's, there's no way you can replicate that in a matter of four years. And so... You know, for me, I think one of the beauties of our present reality is that with technology, whether it's Marco Polo or it's phone calls or FaceTime or an airplane or or car, like you can be connected to people even if they're far away if if you make that a priority. And my friend Jonathan has, like an idiot, told the world that he has a ranking of his 10 best friends. Like it is, I don't know why he didn't think, hey, I should never say that publicly, but he didn't. But despite it being ridiculous to ever say it out loud, I think it's a really good idea to know, like, these are the relationships that I'm going to invest in and I'm going to yeah, put time yeah. into making sure these are the ones that are going to be with me to the end. And Real, real quick, to Jonathan's credit, and they're ranked or, they're rank ordered yeah, for him? Yeah, rank. Maybe the brilliance of that was he knew that a number of you guys are competitive. Mm-hmm. And so he just wants you like vying for the top spot, doing favors for him. It might be the smartest thing he's ever done. You could just undercut each other. So it's not like you're trying to succeed, but you can try to pull other people down. Okay. Got it. Got it. Jay, what's your answer to your own question? I mean, I really relate to what you were saying there, Luke. Um, Like even before I like, uh, even before I worked at a church, honestly, even when I was like in late college, um, like a, a thing I dealt with was South Bend is a place that, Honestly, everybody leaves, uh, at least until recently. The overarching experience was if you can get out, you do get out. And I wasn't leaving. And so I just kind of had this moment years ago where I was like, I'm either going to have to you know, reinvent deep friendship every couple of years, or we're just going to find a way to stay close over distance in right. time. And I mean, certainly, like it's a, I think it's good to have local community. I've got some really, really dear friends here in town. But there's also just um, a batch of friends that have kind of stretched from the west coast to the uk who over the last 15 years i think we've just all sort of recognized it's worth it uh, to stay in each other's lives so we do facetime calls and we we get on airplanes you know and we do the stuff that it takes to stay close yeah it's good it has to be a priority okay let me uh, i want to jump through a couple uh couple sections from the book maybe we'll do this rapid fire uh okay this is uh this is now who's described and again you know now was a legitimate scholar i mean like he's legitimate um i think he's completely wrong about this though but uh <laughs> Jay, you can lean into that four wing or your four type if whatever you want to say you are right now even though you just described earlier a very four tendency of wanting to pull very close to people and then you push them away because they're not there but uh who's who's to say what that meant anyway <laughs> did yeah, i say you did. that you described a four thing and then of 
Of course, someone okay. else described a very three thing. I find my success in what I do. It, anyway, uh, but back to Nowen. Okay. Nowen says, let's look at Jesus for a moment. I don't know if Jesus was ever funny, which might be the one thing you and Jesus have in common, Jay. Um, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I'm not even sure he was happy, but he was filled with joy. Oh. Okay, so he's making the move like Jesus. Wait, he said, but he was filled with he's joy. He's filled with okay. joy. I go with that. But like, Jesus not happy, not funny? That, I don't know. That's a little oh. bit strong for me. I don't know if I can go there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, that, that's hard. I don't, I'm definitely not there. No, I actually think, I actually feel like there's um, a sort of strange sense of humor lurking all over the gospel pages. Yeah. I think if you read Jesus, like, and you, you can get your imagination into what's actually happening in the encounters, I actually, I actually feel like you can almost see him sort of winking, smirking yeah. half the time. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, so Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton wrote a book called Orthodoxy. It's like a short little book on Christian faith. And, uh, the last paragraph of it, I, like I've, I go back to it again and again, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to botch it, but in summary, he says, there was something hidden within the Son of Man which remained hidden because it was so overwhelming and fierce. It was almost like maybe the one thing we couldn't handle in Jesus, maybe the one thing that he knew he had to sort of, almost like the glory that like Moses couldn't like look upon directly. But the, but it, like the last word of the, of the book is, and I actually forget if it was bliss, joy, or happiness, but the idea that, oh, mirth. I think mirth is the word he used. The one thing he hid was mirth? his mirth. Yeah, and it's like an old English word, but oh. that there was just this like bubbling up kind of joyful mirth in Jesus that was perhaps the most intense thing he was experiencing. And I, I mean, it's hard to argue if he's right or wrong, but there's something about that that actually resonates with the more I try to like get inside an imaginative experience of the Jesus of the Gospels, the more I think he's often <clears throat> like kind of lighthearted, like somehow lightheartedness and happiness coexist with him being more present to the hardest things in the world than any of us have ever been. I, like, I just, that's my read. I, I don't know how to get around that. Yeah. He talks, uh, now talks about uh, a word that Jean Venier gave him and in place of joy, he talks about uh, ecstasy, where it's the idea of ek as an out of static, out of the normal and there's his idea of, of joy is that it, it pulls you out of like I don't say the commonplace because I don't I don't think joy is like getting away from everything that's normal, but I think joy is in some ways like infusing ecstasy, in, infusing something into the banal and the normal, and and I think that's what joy does. Yeah, and then don't you think that that like if if you're really living from joy. Um, like that happiness is going to show up sometimes not in spite of or not as a, not as an escape from or an, or an ignorance of all that's dark and difficult but somehow alongside it yeah yeah mike you were saying earlier like the idea of joy and happiness like that they Okay, here's the thing. My computer cut off a second ago, and so we're trying to jump back in like the last three minutes of the conversation. It was a rookie move. I know. I thought my computer... Well, it's just hard because we've thing. tried starting over like three times now, so I think we can't remember what's... what's uh, okay, what yeah. Are. Okay, here's what you forgot, Jay. Jay, you want to say something about going to Rob Bell and the, the, the tickling, giggling thing that you guys did together. And then, Mike, you want to do your thing about how joy and happiness have been bifurcated far too often. 
Go, play it out. Play it <laughs> okay. out. Okay, well, now I have to. So Friday, I saw Rob Elsney speaking to her uh, Introduction to Joy in Chicago. Oh, really? Did you? Huh. <laughs> and he told a story that I've heard him tell before, I think in podcast or something. But he talks about being uh, like in a private room with the Dalai Lama and Bishop Tutu. And how these are obviously two men um, of... Which, by the way, that is quite the name drop. It is quite the name drop, yeah. Yeah. But these are two obviously renowned spiritual leaders who have known a really heavy dose of suffering, both personally and like the people that they serve. Um, And he just talks about like, what's it going to be like? Is it solemn when these two spiritual leaders walk in the room? And he says that they, they meet each other in the middle of the room and they start tickling each other and giggling. And I, I, it's kind of a goofy story, but actually, as I heard it, I think that actually sounds about right to me, because I think it's the people who've gone all the way through and who are like, who, who've really been transformed by their suffering and come out the other side, who find like a lightheartedness, and it's not an escape from all that's difficult. It's, it's how resilient they are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like w- w- when your world falls apart, that you can find something new on the other yeah. side of it. That's it. Yeah. Okay, Mike, do your thing, because I already disagree with you, and I want to follow up with you? you about it, though. Okay. Um, the idea that joy and happiness have been divided too much, well, and you made the point. Yeah, I mean, I think we've gone, we've done a, we've gone to, like, big lengths in the church to try to make sure that we separate joy and happiness, to make sure that people know that joy is not happiness, and, and we do it when we're preaching out of Philippians or whatever. And uh, while I don't think joy and happiness are the same thing, I do think, like, just because you're happy doesn't mean you're joyful, but if you have deep-rooted joy, like I think one of the spillovers of that is going to be expressions of happiness. I don't mm-hmm. know how it couldn't be. Yeah. I, I would say the difference is that happiness is based upon responding to circumstances, and joy is a disposition. But if you have a joyful disposition, you are going to, in your response to circumstances, have you know happy responses at times or times that like happiness is going to spill out of the like absurdity of the moment of the like otherwise um cynicism is what leads you in the other direction Mm. yeah yeah because as i'm going down this trail with you i've never saw someone and said nope that's not happiness that's joy i can see the difference on your face because how do you tell the difference in the moment um yeah so maybe there's definitely so maybe there is a weakness of trying to overly parse those two things. Yeah, I mean, I do think that it's helpful to to be able to differentiate them, but I think there's just so much emphasis placed on it that you end up missing, like, there, yeah, a joyful life spills out in happiness. Mm. Like, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, Jay, any last section from now that you want to get to? Um, man. Uh, the only other thought, I mean, this is kind of maybe... Um, a shared experience for you and me, Luke, but uh, he talks a little bit about just like dwelling with Jesus. It's kind of early in the book. And I think he points to the same, you and I were at Brian Zahn's prayer school a few weeks ago. And Brian kind of lays out a liturgy or a practice of daily prayer. And there's a a kind of a spot right in the middle of it for just sort of contemplative sitting with Christ. And uh, I've been trying to, I've been trying to practice that every day. Haven't, haven't lived up a hundred percent, but like I think of myself as kind of predisposed toward quiet solitude and I've been um, I've been struck by just how stretching, um, sort of completely unscripted, unagenda driven, contemplative presence with Christ is. And he's sort of like early on, he's like, "Oh, by the way, that's how you're going to really know this voice of love." I'm curious um, if you relate to that, Luke. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, Mike, you you hosted uh, one of those prayer yeah, schools. That's right. Yeah, I did church. the prayer school too. A year year ago. Uh, so maybe that's something that you have uh, uh, some experience with as well. But one of the things that uh, is the old adage about parenting is that you know kids spell love T I M E. Like for meaningful moments, quality time for that, that you have to, to to spend time. And it seems as if the practice of hearing the voice is not going to come if you don't create space for yourself to be available for that voice. It, it seems like that that still quiet voice is is going to not force its way over the noise of a hectic frenetic mm-hmm. lifestyle. So you have to create space for that. Yeah. I mean, my experience has been, I have a really, really hard time sitting more and being quiet more. I feel like I sit all the time. I'm sitting in the car to get from place to place. I'm sitting behind a desk, staring at a screen. And then to sit more longer to hear the voice of God, I find it to be incredibly hard and distracting. And I've done all the things to like deal with the distractions and the prayer and the things that I've learned in centering prayer to release thoughts and stuff. But I've actually found the thing that helps me to most um, allow myself to go to that sort of centering place is to do something active, to like go on a hike um, and to not have earbuds with me or whatever, to go on a long bike ride, to go paddle boarding, mm-hmm. to do a thing that where my body is active because my body's not normally active. And so I think like even when the psalmist says, be still and know I'm God, it's a culture that's highly active. that's doing stuff all the time. And then like still your body and your mind then connects differently. So we're a sedentary culture. Mm, wow. And so to like just sit some more doesn't like activate your mind in a different way. So I feel like I need to be active mm. to like to be able to to still the other voices in my head to be able to hear. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Uh, sometimes in, in yoga, there's a practice at the end of a session where uh, you'll lay on the back and you'll put like a yoga block underneath your hips, and then you'll just put your feet straight in the air, and then you'll just sit there for a couple minutes. And some way, like you're you're reattuning your breath that you're not uh you're not active anymore but now you're you're still and i found myself working that into my uh daily practice at at the end of a workout to do that to put on uh to transition the music away from like workout music to uh more contemplative music to do that put feet in the air and it's that same sort of like you have the endorphins releasing from being active and then you flip the switch and say, all of a sudden, I'm going to be still for a second. And I find that to be a very meaningful mm. time as well, to, to do that same idea of active and rest going hand in hand, that there's something uh, kinetic about those two things. Luke, what's your workout music? Ooh, I don't know if I want to answer that question. <laughs> a little T-Swift? Um, <laughs> I, honestly, I, I listened to two Taylor Swift songs this morning. Um, while I was working out, <laughs> I've listened to a lot of. Uh, I have a playlist. Obviously, Chance to Rapper's nice. new album. I've been listening to that one a lot. I have a uh, college rock uh, college playlist rock. that I've been listening to a lot, which includes. Uh, which I didn't listen to rock when I was younger, but I've uh, rechanneled that into my life, which includes Bush wow. and uh, Nirvana <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, Foo yeah. Fighters. So that's that's in there as well. But uh, there is a, f- a fair share of hip hop as well. When. What's your workout music, Jay? <laughs> um, when I work out, I uh, I, usually, I have a buddy named uh, I call him Carp. You guys know Carp too, but um, he has a he has a best of annual playlist. I actually just always listen to. So it's Carp's best of 2018. 
That's nice. So the last time you worked out was 2019. No, no, no. The list doesn't come out until 2019. <laughs> come on. The list comes out in 2019. It's uh, a retrospective on the year okay. that just happened. Okay. All right. I've listened to that playlist. Big shout out to Eric Carpenter. Uh, yeah, he'll and, appreciate that. And his wife, Amanda, who has a who has a book that'll come out, and she'll probably be in the podcast a year from now, I bet. Yeah, because that's is, yeah, she's just signed contract. Yep. Okay. Well, there's a lot of love for the Carpenters, and there's a lot of love for you, Mike. Thanks for sitting in on this. Thanks, thanks for letting me crash your party without reading the book and <laughs> really having anything to contribute. It's not true at all. <laughs> okay, uh, Michael, we're going we're to let you uh, get out and close the podcast on this. Earlier in the podcast, uh, I said that the lady next to me in the airplane said, uh, Jay knows his crap, uh, but didn't say the word crap. Um, do you think, true or false, that's going to be the same response people have after listening to this podcast? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. I, I, I feel like Jay knows his stuff. I feel like you know your stuff. I feel like I can, I can leave without making fun of you guys, and I can be genuine and say, you both, you both know your crap. <laughs> okay, we'll edit that out. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norris. And done. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.